0: This is the 9680 Podcast, Episode 6, Background 5, The Julio-Claudian Dynasty. This will be the final episode of the Background series. I originally set out to make three episodes, totaling around 90 minutes of content, and over the course of six weeks, I ended up making five episodes, totaling about three hours, double of what I expected. I have to say, this isn't necessarily a bad problem or a mistake. I think being able to understand and appreciate Roman history, it takes a lot of time, a lot of commitment, and nearly three hours of background content is really a great start. I think to truly be able to understand history and not just recite some names and dates, you need to spend the time reflecting and thinking critically about the subject, which is what I've tried to accomplish with you in this series. To provide you with time to not just spew out dates and names, but also spend time thinking about it, reflecting on it. And the whole point of that is because going forward, I'll present you new history, new ideas. And so when I talk about, for example, Domitian exiling the philosophers from Rome, someone who isn't familiar with Roman history might think, that's ridiculous, why would the emperor exile philosophers? But after appreciating Roman Empire for long enough, you'll understand that there's a number of reasons why an emperor would want to do that. The Romans are really superstitious, and so any sort of prophecies or claims that philosophers make about emperors is something that could genuinely make the public lose faith in the emperor. And so if they're not listening to the emperor, they might have to be stopped. I mean, it's extreme and it shouldn't be done, but you can understand that in the context of ancient Rome. In any event, I urge you that going forward, You pause the podcast whenever you see fit to think and absorb the material. It might be complicated, I'll try my best to make it not complicated, but if you're confused, it's best to just stop, maybe go back a bit, and think about it. In any event, going forward, we'll be departing from the fairly simple episodes that I've thus far made, that are just chronology, and my job has been pretty simple. I would just have a couple books on my desk and I'll skim and compile them into an episode. It's really not too difficult. Going forward, it's going to be a lot more difficult, which is why it's going to be every two weeks that I put on an episode instead of every one or two. But this episode will be very simple, probably the simplest episode. I'll do a basic chronology of the first five emperors of Rome, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. As the young Octavian, future Augustus, comes to power after the death of Caesar, he fell in love with an aristocratic woman who in the same vein as Cleopatra was endlessly infectious because of just how damn smart and capable she was. This woman, Livia, would be the first empress of Rome and one of the most interesting ones in my opinion. As far as I'm concerned, Livia is the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Every Julio-Claudian is directly related to her and she exerted immense backroom influence until her death in 29 AD. I would like to use my podcast to tell everyone just how awesome she is Since she isn't a household name like Cleopatra, and in the ancient sources, she's commonly painted as a murderer, who even maybe killed Augustus. At the time that she became attached to Octavian, when he was in his late teens, by the way, she had a young son, the future emperor, Tiberius. Herein lies the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Octavian was a member of the Julii family, and Livia was a Claudii. Her first husband has familiar sounding name, Tiberius Claudius Nero. He would be none of the emperors associated with those names, but that's how common those names were with that family. The next four subsequent emperors after Augustus would be descendants of one side of the family or the other, or a mix of the two. Augustus would be a full Julii emperor, and Tiberius would be, aside from maritally fully Claudii. The family tree is extremely confusing. It, it's almost comical how confusing it is. A confusing thing: just about every male Claudii has the name Tiberius Claudius Nero, which makes it very confusing. Not to worry; I'll put a picture of the Julio-Claudian dynasty family tree on the 96 AD podcast subreddit, reddit.com/r/96AD. Check it out. Now on to our first emperor, the divine Augustus. Last time we left our friend Augustus recovering from 17 years of civil war in 27 BC and being handed every relevant political position needed to control the entirety of the Roman Empire. He thus became the first Roman Emperor, and started a tenure as emperor that would be among the longest in the entire history of Rome, all the way to 1453. Augustus is, by most metrics, just about the best emperor the empire would ever see as well. And it seems the case that the Principate, the system that he designed, was designed to run for him the entire role of emperor slash princeps was built around Augustus's skill set and what he liked to do. And so it's simply the case that every other emperor after him wasn't exactly like him, and so they couldn't rule the same way. But after 41 years, that's what everyone was used to. Augustus created the princeps position, and he filled the role almost flawlessly for over 40 years. The rest of the Julio-Claudians would be largely disappointing, just simply because they were not him, and they were normally pampered princes. And let's be honest, any half-decent man would fail at the position of emperor. And it's really unfortunate, then, that we didn't even get halfway decent men, aside from Claudius. On top of his roles as several different important magistrates, Augustus got his legitimacy from claiming to be the son of a god. The god, of course, is Julius Caesar. The cult of the emperors, starting with Caesar, interacted with the Roman religion in a really interesting way. Dead emperors and their relatives would be deified. They would literally be added as minor deities to the Roman pantheon. Usually, a temple would be built and a staff of priests would be appointed. It was the obligation of the populace to worship the emperors of old. No doubt to support the authority and legitimacy of the current emperor to respect that position. Because someday, he would theoretically become a god. Don't forget this. It'll be really important going forward, just keep in the back of your mind. Augustus's reign is in part dominated by the question of succession. Augustus was seemingly obsessed, or by the very least acutely aware of the importance of succession. He spent his career cultivating the imperial system, and he wanted it to continue with an heir. And any competent emperor will tell you just how important finding an heir is. Prepare yourself for a whole lot of names. First off, Augustus only had one biological child. This was a girl, Julia. Julia was married off to Marcellus. Marcellus was the nephew of Augustus, and we could ignore the incestuous nature for now, the Romans wouldn't have considered it as such. Marcellus was maybe supposed to be heir, but any hopes of that went away when he died in 23 BC. After the death of Marcellus, Julia was married to the coolest guy in Roman history. To explain this, I must first mention that Augustus was an extremely capable administrator and emperor, but he did not care for battle, and he was not really good at it. Until so he got a childhood friend, Marcus Agrippa, to win all the battles for him. And Agrippa won all the battles for him. He's the reason Augustus got his position. And now the name Agrippa might sound familiar. If you see the pantheon in Rome, it is M. Agrippa that is written on it. And that's him. Agrippa was married to Julia, and the marriage would produce two sons in 20 and 17 BC. And likely the two of them were groomed to be heirs. Unfortunately, Agrippa would die in 12 BC and even sadder, the two young boys would die not long after. Now trying to get on to the fourth heir of choice, Augustus in turned to the son of his wife from her previous marriage, the now, in his thirties, Tiberius. Augustus would train Tiberius for the position, and he would eventually inherit it in 14 AD, making him quite qualified for the job as the second emperor of Rome. And Tiberius, of course, became the third husband of Julia. Tiberius came to power after the peaceful death of Augustus in 14 AD, and would reign until 37. He was a competent soldier, having been off serving in the military for 30-something years by the time of his ascension, but it's clear that he didn't have the political ability that oozed through Caesar and Augustus. We must admit, though, Tiberius was probably one of the most well-trained emperors at the time of his ascension, but Tiberius' reign is dominated by the sense of indifference. Occasionally competence, but usually indifference. Tiberius was extremely competent. He was well-trained by Augustus specifically to be emperor. He was smart, and he'd been in the imperial system since the beginning. It's obvious that Tiberius could have been a good emperor or a great emperor if he cared and he had 23 years to be a good one, but now no one really talks about him. And it's just that he didn't want to be emperor. Multiple times during the reign of Augustus, he tried to step down from public life, but he was forced to continue because he was the only heir left. Maybe. He wanted to stop serving because a bunch of younger men were being chosen to be heir before him. And so when it came to being emperor, he didn't care for it, especially near the end of his reign. Tiberius would have some problems choosing his successor as well. He would first appoint Germanicus, his nephew, who married the daughter of Julia as his heir. Germanicus would have been a wonderful emperor but died in 20 AD. It's possible that Tiberius ordered the death of Germanicus after a dispute And maybe this dispute was a result of jealousy at the success of the young golden boy Germanicus. In any event, Tiberius would appoint his own son, Drusus, as heir. And that to really show the influence and importance of Germanicus, that Tiberius would appoint him before his own son. And Germanicus really was wildly popular. He won massive battles all around the empire. And pretty much everyone loved him. He was the biggest celebrity around. But unfortunately, Drusus would die in 23 AD. It's around this time that Tiberius would kind of just give up. He would put the imperial reins in the hands of Sejanus, the Praetorian prefect, the head of the palace guard. And so Sejanus was just a guy, a magistrate, who became the head of the personal guard of the emperor, the Praetorian guard. And now he was running the empire, and he didn't want any opponents. And it was likely him who killed Drusus, alongside several others. And he became Tiberius' de facto co-ruler, or pretty much ruler in his own right. And he ruled in his own right pretty much from 26 to 31 AD. This is because, by 26 AD, Tiberius was so fed up with ruling that he simply stopped ruling and lived in a villa in Capri, an island off the coast of Naples. He simply was not in Rome, and he only responded to correspondence that Sejanus would send him. Because Sejanus would make sure that no one else got to contact the emperor. So Sejanus was truly in charge, which is crazy. And Sejanus was really confident. He was really good at what he did, but he was just a guy pretending to be the emperor. And so the rule ended up being somewhat tyrannical, including the deaths of Drusus and several others. Sejanus had to be so ruthless because he needed to be the only liaison to the emperor all public business would have to go through him. If it didn't, then someone else would become the main guy. Sejanus was the main guy, and he had the same type of charisma and personal ability as Caesar and Augustus, so he, he pulled it off, but he couldn't pull it off for too long. Eventually, Tiberius would figure it out, and Sejanus would be executed in 31 AD. The last years of Tiberius's life, in his 70s, were filled with distrust, lust, and general sadism. He ordered many executions, and many exiles, during the treason trials, where the Emperor could bring any shred of evidence, or none at all, and accuse someone of treason, and then execute them. It brings back memories of nothing but the prescriptions of Sulla and Augustus. It was terrible, and let's not even get into the sexual deviance of Tiberius at the end of his life, because I don't want to. It's gross. The 70-something Tiberius died in 37 AD, likely killed by the last surviving offspring of Germanicus, since the rest he killed himself. And this would be the first Julio Claudian, the grandnephew of Tiberius, the great-grandson of Augustus, the great Caligula. I've said all these terrible things about Tiberius, and if I can be completely honest, I don't like him much. But let's not forget that he was an extremely capable ruler, and he ruled for 23 years, and it really isn't until the last 10 that it got terrible. For the first while, he was pretty much the heir to Augustus, as everyone would expect. I mean, Among all emperors that would follow Augustus, there aren't many that could have done this after the death of Augustus. So really, Tiberius did a great job, and we shouldn't be too harsh on him. I think just towards the end of his life, he just went a bit crazy. He was, however, always unpopular in his own time. He was harsh, he was serious, and he didn't have time for the kind of personality of Augustus and Caesar. And so in the end, the news of the death of Tiberius was not met with sadness, but mostly relief. And especially because they loved the new emperor. 24-year-old Caligula, he was the son of Germanicus, and everyone loved Germanicus. Germanicus died young, it was so tragic. He was only 33. It was like how Alexander died when he was 32. And Germanicus won massive victories, some in the East, just like Alexander. So therefore, Caligula inherited the public love and support that his Neo-Alexander had garnered. Additionally, he was pretty much the only Julio-Claudian around. So, aside from a couple siblings and a certain Uncle Claudius, There was no one else that could take his position. And so the young boy took control, and he wanted everyone to love him. Now let's get into the reign of Caligula. Caligula is great. He's one of the most comical, insane characters in world history. He and Nero are extremely well-known just because of the incredible stories that came down to us from writers like Suetonius. First, the name. Caligula has a fun name. Caligula was always referred to as Gaius in the ancient times. So if you read an ancient book and they are talking about the Emperor Gaius... That's him. Caligula is the name we call him because of how many people were named Gaius. Gaius Julius Caesar. Gaius Octavius. I mean, every second guy was named Gaius. And Caligula itself was chosen because it's the perfect oxymoronic name for him. Caligula is the name for the little army boots that he wore. He was, of course, brought on campaign with his father Germanicus. And he was kind of like the mascot of the army. Everyone kind of loved him and paraded him around, and they loved the little boots that he wore there. So cute that everyone kind of just kept on calling him Caligula because he became a very uncute emperor, and so it was pretty funny. And so that's now how we know the perverted psychotic emperor in modern times. Anyways, Little Boots was in his early 20s when he started his reign. And as a boy in his early 20s myself, I ensure you that it's a terrible idea to entrust us with absolute power. But to start, it was alright, because Caligula cared about everyone liking him. And the people did rejoice when he took power, and Little Boots was actually quite conscientious for the first two years. He cancelled Tiberius' treason trials, and was willing to make any concession for anyone who had any kind of problem. Little Boots went even so far as to declare that the Senate actually ruled alongside him instead of being subordinate to him. Everyone thought that Little Boots was going to be the next Augustus, wise beyond his years, preparing to lead Rome for generations. That they were wrong. And unfortunately, Little Boots went a little crazy. Little Boots was very obviously suffering from a lot of trauma. Tiberius had likely killed just about all his family, and invited the young Little Boots to his villa in Capri, where he would have witnessed all the disgusting and perverted acts that Tiberius was performing, maybe even performing with him. And he was never knowing if Tiberius was going to turn around and kill him. I mean, Tiberius killed his entire family. So most of his life was lived as scared and powerless. And now he was the most powerful person on the planet. And all of this must have messed up his mind. And not to mention, he got sick and nearly died about two years into his reign. Little Boots must have become completely numb to attachment and respect for his fellow man. And so horrifying villainy would ensue in his reign. It seems that just under a year after taking power, Little Boot snapped, and for the rest of his reign, he was not reborn Augustus, but was simply a deeply troubled boy who was given unchecked power. The ancient sources give us a ton of fun Caligula stories, some of which reached the public conscious, and so you may know them. Most are aware that Caligula tried to make his horse consul and ordered his troops to attack the water in northern France as a victory against Neptune. Now, certainly most of these stories aren't true or only hold a bit of truth. The horse story, for example, was more likely describing a jab against the Senate along the lines of, the consuls here are so pointless, I could appoint my horse consul and it wouldn't matter. That doesn't sound like a crazy emperor. That sounds like an emperor who is upset at someone. The attacking water story is probably just exaggerating the fact that Caligula was trying to invade Britain and that he had faked victories in battles to hold triumphal processions in the city. Who's to say? In any event, there's some truth to all of these. In general, towards the end of his reign, Caligula became extremely vain, arrogant, and restless. He ordered many senators executed, putting the senatorial class in the same sense of fear that he himself endured as a teenager. Eventually, everyone had just had enough, and some palace staff and members of the Praetorian Guard assassinated him after only four years of taking power. In 41 AD, Caligula died, and when he died, it's reported that nobody wanted to celebrate because they weren't sure if it was just a scheme by the Emperor to find out who didn't like him, so he could execute them. This should describe the fear and contempt that the populace had for Caligula, that they were scared to celebrate his death, because that's the kind of stunt he would pull. In any event, back in the palace, the Praetorian Guard was killing members of Caligula's family. And upon hearing this, Uncle Claudius, brother of Germanicus, hid as to not be killed. He was ultimately found, of course, but instead of being killed, he was hailed as Emperor. This was a smart move by the Praetorians, since if the Senate was allowed to appoint an emperor, or abolish the emperorship, the Praetorian Guard would definitely be acted against for killing the emperor. They might be dissolved, or they'd all be exiled, or maybe executed. So instead, they appointed Claudius emperor, and so he owed them his life, so he couldn't prosecute them. What's more, they probably thought they could control him, and we'll get into why in a second, but the main question is why is Claudius even alive? Claudius is around 50 at the time of his ascension, So why wasn't he either emperor by now, died of natural causes, or killed by someone because he was becoming too powerful? And why did everyone think they could control him? It's simple. Nobody thought that he was a full person or could hold office. Claudius had a limp, and he spoke with a stutter. In the extremely prejudiced world of the Romans, this would withhold you from public life and make everyone ridicule you. Of course, Claudius was given a bit of a pass because he was in the imperial family, but still nothing came easily to him. He had held offices much later in his career, and it's unclear if he was given those offices just so he could be made fun of by Caligula. But the point is, he was the oldest Julio-Claudian around, was relatively experienced, and no one hated him, so he was appointed emperor. It's clear that Augustus and Caligula both enjoyed poking fun at him. But Claudius was actually quite smart, and extremely competent. He easily is second to Augustus in terms of quality of emperorship among the Julio-Claudians and he easily ranks among the top dozen or so emperors until the fall of the west. So Claudius was an altogether different type of emperor. He was the least royal member of the royal family, since no one else liked him, they ostracized him. So it was easier for him to create friendships among the upper-class Romans throughout his years. In fact, before he was emperor, he was an academic. He wrote histories, and it breaks my heart that they don't survive. But his work was by all accounts quite good, and impressed the prejudiced Augustus, who changed his mind about the young Claudius. And so, the stuttering Uncle Claudius became emperor, hated by none, and relatively liked by all. He was just a competent guy, and he would reign well. And he would, in fact, reign well for 13 years. He was very diligent and definitely took passion in his role as emperor. Claudius appointed freedmen, freed slaves, to be a sort of cabinet, meaning that he had a senior staff of magistrates that divided the power of government and allowed for better quality administration. These freed slaves were all well-educated and qualified, so he was picking the best people for the job, and he specifically avoided senators. This meant that the people he was appointing had no vested interest in certain political moves. They owed their power and career solely to the emperor, and so they would serve him to the best of their ability. So they would make sure that he kept reigning and didn't replace them, so they made sure he stayed successful. This precedent would be followed by just about every emperor after him. Much can be said negative about Claudius. He's described as lavish. You could argue that one of his freedmen, Narcissus, entirely ran the state for him. And Claudius' personal life certainly is a stain on his reputation. However, even the most negative sources have to concede that he was conscientious and administered to the best of his ability, even if his ability wasn't amazing. He tried his absolute best, and he got it right, even if he had to fail a few times. He administered the law fairly and seemed to have personally taken a role in organizing the invasion of Britain. The invasion of Britain was more successful than that of Caesar's, as Britain would become formally added to the Empire, and it would be added to the Empire as the last long-standing province, meaning that he was a truly conquering emperor, which no one expected from the stuttering, incompetent idiot that everyone thought he was. Claudius' reign is important because of its length, quality of administration and quality of dynasty. The simple fact is that between the death of Augustus in 14 and the ascension of Vespasian in 69, Claudius was the only emperor that is generally appreciated by the population and historians. So the precedents that he set in his reign for the role of emperor would be ones that would keep. It's just a case that Tiberius, Caligula, and Nero were all hated and so anything that they did in their lives was just kind of erased and no one wanted to do the stuff they did and generally they didn't do anything well. And so after the reigns of Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero, all that anyone had to look back on for a good precedent for how they should reign was Augustus and Claudius. And since Claudius was much closer to them, his precedents would take precedence. So everyone would reign, like Claudius. Claudius' reign would permanently morph the position of emperor. Claudius, in some respects, drew back the imperial curtains and allowed for larger involvement in government. The senate had more autonomy, he had a cabinet, but in other respects, power was consolidated in the position and person of the emperor. Claudius reportedly moved the city walls of Rome, which previously was something nobody was allowed to do and nobody had done. Claudius administered a census, when normally men were appointed to do so. The Roman census also had a component of deciding who belonged to which class, which was very important, and Claudius took a much more aggressive and unprecedented approach to this, which would become the norm going forward. Additionally, Claudius became the first emperor to take military matters personally into his own control. Augustus didn't take to military matters, Tiberius didn't take to many matters, and Caligula was Caligula. So Claudius was the first real emperor to have success militarily. Certainly he didn't plan every detail of the British campaigns like Caesar would have, but he did take an active role and he traveled to the island and led the armies, in in a way. And in my mind this shows that Claudius is the link between Augustus and Vespasian, when the emperors became truly martial. The emperorship was able to become more military with more individual authority in the emperor, with also a wider circle of administrators around them, which would set the precedent for Diocletian's almost Byzantine, it's not really the right word to choose here, I guess, but Diocletian's crazy complicated administration that kept the Byzantine empire around until 1453. The emperor could now, at a whim, decide what class you belonged to, decide where your city walls were built, and lead legions into far-off lands. Vespasian's reign, and more so in the reigns of Trajan and eventually Diocletian like I mentioned, this would become the definition of the emperor. Augustus's emperorship was a juggling act of magistracies, filling every role possible. While Claudius's reign became simply one of an individual with personal authority over everything and anything, even if there wasn't a precedent for it. If there wasn't an office that controlled it before, the emperor could still do it now. Now I know I've talked about Claudius a lot, and he's undoubtedly one of my favorite emperors. He's the unlikely outcast ascended to the throne because he might be able to be controlled by someone else, only to become one of the best emperors in history. What I purposefully push to the back of my mind with Claudius is his personal life. I appreciate that at the very least, I could not accept the personal and sexual endeavors of any ancient individual, and we can't hold them to today's standards, but. Claudius still left a lot to be desired, and I won't go into all about it, but it's honestly not too bad compared to Tiberius Caligula and Nero. Claudius married four times. Claudius is almost kind of like the story of Henry VIII and his wives. Claudius divorced his first wife because of adultery and other crimes, divorced his second wife for political reasons. She was related to Sejanus, who had just been killed by Tiberius. Then he married his once-removed first cousin, which is weird. Then by the middle of his reign, Claudius supposedly executed her because she attempted to marry another man in secret, which is, like, just crazy. This prompted him to get married again, and he married his niece, which was, like, really weird. Even to the Romans, they did not like this. And this niece was the daughter of his brother Germanicus, Agrippina. Agrippina brought to the household a son named Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus. Aside from telling you this because I love saying that name, Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus would be known to us simply as Nero. Agrippina convinced Claudius to adopt Nero to be co heir with Claudius' biological son Britannicus. Almost immediately after this was all sorted, Claudius suddenly died, likely having been poisoned by Agrippina. Britannicus would soon find himself poisoned as well. And so, this blazed a path for 17 year old Nero to become emperor. Nero and Agrippina are. fun? Nero is well known today for his golden palace and for his famous incident playing his fiddle while Rome burned, and other crazy acts. But the mother certainly kept up with the son, and the mother and son duo were fondly remembered for just how terrible they are, especially to each other. Agrippina is certainly the reason Nero became emperor instead of Britannicus, and probably expected to be something of a, a regent to the teenager, ruling pretty much in her own right. However, she quickly discovered that Nero thought that he was the next Augustus, and he thought that it wasn't cool to have his mom around while he governed. Agrippina quickly tried to get Nero killed, no doubt to get a more pliable vessel on the throne, but this failed, and Agrippina only survived the crackback from Nero because Nero's advisors were all in her pocket. and convinced him to just send her away. Nero was now ready to show the world that he was the next best thing. Just like Caligula before him, his connection to Germanicus led him to be beloved by the population right away. Nero was mostly interested in ruling to be loved by the people. As you're likely aware, Nero loved performing, and he loved arts. He loved singing, dancing, and playing instruments. In ancient Rome, however, actors and entertainers were like the lowest of the low in terms of status, and so it was literally offensive to aristocrats for... Uh, Nero to be performing and dancing around on stage, and, of course, they didn't appreciate that he forced them to show up and would kill them if they didn't. And so the Emperor was always performing and always playing a role, and so it's no doubt that Nero wanted the population to applaud him as Emperor just as the audience would applaud him when he's on stage. So Nero cut taxes, and like an early Caligula, he did anything that anyone would want to. And he was beloved by all. In fact, even by the end of his reign, everyone still loved him because he just did those cool things, and he was the emperor that was performing on stage. That's crazy, we had never seen that before. But all the aristocrats really didn't like him, and and unfortunately for him, his extravagance was, alongside massive military defeats in Britain's and in the East, was eating away at that treasury. Certainly the imperial trips to Greece for Nero's indulgence of Greek art also took a toll on the coffers of the imperial government. The result was debasing coins. He would lower the precious metal content in coins so that he could print more of them, which is not a smart thing to do and would end up almost destroying the Roman Empire. I mean, I'm not going to blame Nero for this because pretty much every emperor after him did it, but he's kind of set the precedent. But let's not be all negative on Nero because not all his spending was bad. Much was spent on the upkeep of Rome and the construction of public works around the Empire. So like Caligula, Nero's reign started out pretty well. I mean, everyone liked him. And he had administrators that were running the government, just like Claudius had. And he had two particular individuals that were capable of running the entire government, and for the first eight years, they ran it really well. However, a falling out would leave one of them poisoned and the other exiled, in 62 AD. In 64 AD, the most famous event in Nero's reign would take place, the Great Fire. Most of Rome burned, as a tightly packed and poorly organized city was the perfect breeding ground for massive fires. Nero likely didn't start the fire, and likely didn't play his fiddle through it. For one thing, he didn't play the fiddle, and for another, he was probably not in the city. I hope that's a good enough defense for him. And for another thing, Nero was actually really generous and studious when he was rebuilding the city. He supplied aid for the population and rebuilt all the buildings. The one thing I can say is that... Nero took the prime real estate at the center of Rome and built himself a big old golden palace, which leads lots to suggest that he set the fire, or maybe he just let it burn a bit longer, just so he could get that prime real estate. By this time, increasing self-confidence of the now mid-twenties emperor resulted in a mad spree. Nero executed many prominent Romans in the fear that they may replace him. This is because maybe in 65 AD there was a large conspiracy called the Pisonian Conspiracy, That almost resulted in Nero's death and actually included a good portion of Nero's personal administration which made the Emperor extremely scared. Nero murdered any and all rivals anyone too powerful and several members of his administration and so this continual turncoat just made it so much worse no good governance was taking place. So by the end of his reign Nero was mad he was paranoid now let's talk about Nero the man, or should I say the boy, he was as immature as can be. He loved to party and supposedly would roam the streets at night with his posse and attack random people. He ordered the murder of his mother in 59 after failing to murder her multiple times before. Nero divorced and eventually executed his Julio-Claudian wife and married a random girl named Poppea. She was the perfect match for him because she was apparently terrible. Nero often committed gross acts, including raping a Vestal Virgin and castrating a boy, then pretending to marry him? He was no doubt a sick and mad emperor. Nero's debauchery would run rampant, and the Pisonian conspiracy left him more and more paranoid, and more and more crazy, and more and more mad. Most prominent individuals wanted to kill the emperor, but they were too scared to plan, since any plans were being reported to the emperor by someone who wanted to make a quick buck because they knew that he would act on anything they told him. (laughs) So no one in the city would overthrow Nero. So Nero's fate would come from the provinces, as an overwhelming military might would be the ultimate legitimizer, as it always is. And so this is how we'll leave the Julio-Claudians. Nero is scrambling to hold on to power, while a turncoat of ministers leads to the administration entering the gutter. When large revolts break out in Gaul, Nero knows is doomed. The Rhine Legions are coming, and they're the best in the empire. If you want to ask me questions or leave suggestions for the podcast, head on over to my de facto website, the 96AD subreddit. Just head over to reddit.com/r/96AD. You can find the link in the podcast description. I'll be posting updates about the podcast there, and will respond to anybody who posts, and I'm willing to post my sources if anyone's interested. Another thing you'll find on the subreddit is a PayPal donate button. This is not required or expected. This podcast will always remain free, and I don't aim to profit. However, donations will cover the cost of production, and will support me, a student who is attempting to study, work, and produce the podcast all at once, for some reason. Next time, meaning maybe next week, but more likely two weeks, I'll be starting with the main content of the podcast. We'll be done the background material. The first real episode will be about the current political state of Rome in 68 AD that Nero faced, setting up the civil wars following Nero's death that resulted four different emperors taking control in less than a year. I'll see you then.